Yeah, no, I, I didn't really recognize this episode. I don't even know how it's going to end. Imagine my surprise with the way it did end. Some of you may or may not be aware, uh, this was done by Gene Kuhn, a.k.a. Lee Cronin, although they, there were some rewrites by Arthur Hanneman. Hanneman. I'm going to go with Hanneman. I think that's how that's supposed to be pronounced. Who also, this is actually funny, also did some rewrites, uh, or let me say this correctly. He's never done a script by himself, but he did a co-script with Savage Curtain and Wade Eden. This was directed by Judd Taylor, who's actually a decent director and does some cute stuff with the camera. I'll talk about that in a minute. So, let's get the nitpicking out of the way first. The way they handle the whole speed thing in this episode is total nonsense. In order for the speed thing to be taken as writ, they have to be moving at at least faster to the point where they're not in a single spot for longer than one-sixtieth of a second, roughly. And if you factor in a few other things with how much time has passed based on how many events happen with the uh, frozen versus the accelerated time, people who are ahem, smarter than me have actually figured out that roughly the speed that the the, the telosians, excuse me, not the telosians, different people, would be moving at is roughly 840 times normal speed. Now that's very fast. It is not ludicrously fast, which brings me to my first nitpick. The sensors should have absolutely no problems whatsoever locking onto something moving at 840 times speed. You know how I know that? Because the sensors work at warp speed, which is many millions times faster than normal speed, because faster than light. If you have sensors that can work at faster than light, then congratulations, you have sensors that can work at incredible speeds. They have to, by default. This is, I mean, I could also bring up this complaint when it comes to combat at FTL speeds, but let's not get into that particular nitpick right here. So that's my first irritant. They can't scan the Scalosians for some reason. My second nitpick is the only way for them to actually remain invisible is for them to remain moving, right? Let me put it this way. If you were to stand very, very still, going at 840 times speed, and do that for about 840 seconds, which is quite a chunk of time, but if you did actually do that, someone would see you, right? Uh, you would be visible. I don't know if you actually need to do the full 840, but you get the point. So obviously no one can be standing still for that amount of time. So this brings up a couple of interesting questions. First of all, how do the transporters work in this context? Dila mentions that she beamed up with Kirk. How? Ignoring the obvious fact that the transporter would need to scan her, to lock onto her, to beam her up, there's also the fact that she would have to be still because you can't move while you're being transported, so she's being transported up and... You see the problems here? For there are indeed two problems with this. Funnily enough, I think if they'd used the shuttle bay instead of the transporter, this might have actually been, you know, something that could be explained much easier. That would be an extremely, extraordinarily boring trip, being on a shuttle, you know, going up to the planet for what is probably days... But nevertheless, that would actually make more sense. This brings me to my next point, though. This is smaller of a point, but still a point. How the hell do they get around the ship? Oh, sure, walking down the corridors is fine, but try getting into a turbo lift. Think about that. And again, if they're going through the turbo lift, they're probably going through the turbo lift when someone else is going through there, so they're piggybacking. I want you to imagine what it'd be like having to basically run in, in just a continuous circle 
with this sort of long-suffering look on your face and kind of rolling your eyes like, oh, my God. Because you can't stay still because then the person that you're piggybacking will notice you. And you have to do that for um, hours in order to get from point A to point B. Maybe not hours, but, you know, minutes and minutes and minutes of time of just... Uh, well, let's do some quick math here. Hang on. Let's assume... Because I actually assumed this in a later calculation. Give me a second. Let's assume a an average trip on a turbo lift takes about a minute. That's probably highballing it, honestly. We can probably bring that down to 30 seconds. Let's bring it down to 30 seconds, okay? So that would be... Seven hours. A 30-second turbo lift tri trip would be roughly seven hours of running in a circle. The problem is, this is the same problem with the next phase. You remember that? Over on TNG? You may or may not remember that. That's actually one of my favorite episodes of TNG, and very high up on the VHS list. I love that episode. And I like this episode, too. That's why I wanted to get the nits out of the way first, because the premise is stupid and nonsense, and they use it incredibly inconsistently. There is one other nit I'm going to mention, but it's more for humor factor than anything else. So let's jump into the episode proper. So they have this population of the city, which only had 900,000 people in the city. And I was like, wow, that's it? I mean, it's better than the 100 back in Day in the Dove. I just had to look into it. The city I currently live in has a population of 288,000, okay? All right, you're thinking. That's not so bad. But let me, let me clarify that. I don't know if this is true in Europe, but here in the States, there's cities, and then there's city areas. And city areas, usually referred to as the such-and-such -such metropolitan area, are huge. Basically, it's, it is, in every way that matters, one city. It's just there's several city borders within it. This is very common here in the States. Um, and I'm not going to name examples, because any example I name is obviously someplace I don't live in, and I don't want to give you any hints. But the point is that that is true basically at every major city in the entire country. Again, I'm not sure if this is true in the other countries as well. Feel free to answer this. Either way, in the greater metropolitan area of blank, which I happen to live in, the population is 6.8 million. This is not that big of an urban sprawl here. I only wanted to point that out to give some perspective here. Either way, they do something really cool. Uh, they use the bzzz, okay, first of all, but second of all, there's this bit where Kirk, you know, his hair tossles. Obviously, I don't have hair to tossle. Hang on, hang on. Okay, so pretend this is my hair. We're, we're going full in. We're, we're using the Season 3 budget here, okay? And at one point, there's like a mechanism that just makes the hair going to go whoosh, whoosh, because she's tossing his hair as she kisses him. That's actually pretty cool and very clever. There's, like, there's some good directing and some good set piecing in this. Despite everything, this was actually a pretty cheap episode to make. Uh, while they did have a few special effects, almost the overwhelming majority of the episode occurs on the Enterprise, and there's only really three guest stars that, and I, I shouldn't even say that, there's only three guest stars that have lines, so. So they managed to keep the budget down and do a good job with it, so credit on that. This is a good time to mention that almost everything I've read here says, oh man, this script is terrible, this episode's terrible. I think it's just because Kuhn was burnt out, because, you know, he's working on the other show, and... Did we watch the same episode? I mean, I know personal preference is personal preference. I can name several examples of something that I love and other people hate, and vice versa. We just look at each other like, huh? 
I've met people who have told me to my face in a legitimate matter, not a trolling matter, that they think FF6 sucks. FF6, for those of you not aware, is my favorite game of all time. So I get that that's a thing, it's just I don't really see any issues with the scripting of this episode. In fact, I think this is actually one of the tighter written scripts of this season, probably second only to Enterprise Incident, which was Fontana. Either way, <clears throat> so, yeah, um, looking at my notes here, the tricorder manages to n note them, that's actually funny. Phasers don't work, okay, sure. So they try to disconnect the thing, then they try to destroy the thing, and then, well, then Kirk drinks the coffee and he is finally tilted. Now, I do like this. I, I, I was undecided at first. What happens is he tilts the camera to indicate whenever they're in hyper-accelerated mode. 840 times mode. Cool. I'm with that. And at first I wasn't sure, but I think it does work. First of all, it's a very good, quick, immediate visual indicator. And I do like visual indicators. I'm big on HUD and interface design in general, and this is a good example of that. But I also like it because they use it to good effect in the scene with Spock, McCoy, and Chapel. The scene starts, and he takes it, and then they, they note that he's getting slower, and then the camera tilts, and Spock's like, huh, fascinating. And then just walks off screen. Then, n no edits, then the camera just tilts back to normal, and then the two actors are told to keep acting. It's good. I like it. It's, it's, it's inventive stuff. And I, like I said, Mr. Taylor does some good stuff with that. Anyways, this then leads to Dila, who goes, and super kisses him. Credit where credit is due. Every time Dila tries to, let's be honest, force herself onto Kirk, he is very resistant to that. He is not on board at all. And in fact, while he is polite, he flat out says, you know, this will not feel good, but this is stunned, this will not hurt you. He tries to shoot her with the phaser. That doesn't work. Why do their weapons work? Anyways. <clears throat> She's really coy about everything, she, which is actually good writing. She doesn't actually lay out everything that's going on. She's just like, oh, it always happens this way. She seems to basically be waiting for the effect to take effect on him. We don't even know the effect ha exists yet. This is why I mentioned the tight scripting, because she is clearly acting as though she's waiting for the uh, mind-affecting rays, or whatever it is, to finally get through to him and affect him. And they're not. And so she's like, okay, well, I'll just go along with it for now. After all, this is going to eventually happen. And, of course, we don't know that. So we're just looking at her like, what's she doing? But with context, everything she's doing makes perfect sense. Tight writing. We then see Compton. Now, this is interesting. Because at first, it seems like Compton just decided to turncoat because pretty face. But then we find out later about the rays that make, make you kind of more complacent and more compliant. And so his actions all of a sudden make a lot more sense. Especially since he does eventually kind of fight it, like, oh my god, what'd you do with the captain? No! And he comes to his captain's support because, well, there's still enough of Compton in there to, to, to be able to resist that, right? It's just interesting to think about, and again, very tightly written. So then they take the turbo lift down. I've already talked about this, we're moving on. And they run around in a circle for seven hours. Why would Kirk do that? Although I can't imagine Kirk standing still for... Oh, what is that? Let's figure out how long that is to be able to be seen. Let, let's assume worst-case scenario, shall we? So Kirk would have to stay still for a minimum of 14 minutes. Now, that is, a, that is a long period of time. But at the same time, like, I could just do this and comfortably just kind of 
And I'm still mostly still. There's still enough of me being here so that if I did this for eight hundred, you know, 14 minutes, someone would be able to see me, right? I could probably do that. I think Kurt could too, but no, let's just move on. Interestingly, Spock's the only one who really seems to think about this whole thing in any manner, which I suppose makes sense. He's Spock. Kirk tries to endure the pain to remove the object, and this is when he finds out about cell damage, which is again referenced earlier. Again, tight scripting. This is probably the most nonsensical thing in an episode about going 840 times your regular speed, because the idea is that if I did that right there, I would die. Just a scratch. Any kind of skin damage, any kind of cellular damage, which can come from so many different things. If you eat the wrong kind of food, you can scrape the, the gums of your mouth when you're chewing. You could bump your shin on something. You could, I don't know, claw at someone while you're having sex with them. Or bite. It is not that hard to affect skin damage. I keep saying skin. Cell damage. It is such a minor thing. And it brings up a point that just makes me kind of go, huh? Why? In fact, why is that even a plot point? It adds nothing to the episode. In fact, I would say it's the worst part of the episode because it's so unnecessary. It's not even a dilemma or a threat per se. It's just, this is why Compton died. Like, that's the only reason it's there. This is why Compton died. They have plenty of ways to threaten to hurt or kill without having to have the threat of, oops. And, oops, is just insanity. I just died three times there. <laughs> you know? Whatever. So, cell damage. Yay. This then leads to Rail and Dila. Again, very well written. The two interact in a way that, in hindsight, clearly indicates that there is a strong passion and, indeed, love between the two. But everything they're saying... It, it's good exposition, is what I'm trying to say. It's so rare to see this kind of excellent exposition. That's why I'm praising it so much. Because instead of saying, Dila, as you know, I am very attracted to you. Well, as you know, Rail, I love you back. No, they don't do that, which would probably be the worst possible ex example of what they could do. Instead, they just act kind of cold and distant, and there's this little bit of emotional tension between the two. And she and he flat out, you know, she at this one point she says this line, and I forget how she says it, but she says something about, this is what must be done. He says, I'm doing my duty. And she says, and I'm doing mine. Just kind of nailing it down there, because obviously neither of them are particularly happy about this. Later on, she has a great line. Um... I do what I must, allow me the privilege of in, of liking the one I have chosen, or something like that. There's this interesting balance between her accepting her fate, because she's a fatalist, and at the same time wanting to get the best out of it she can. That's a very understandable thing. I'm not trying to relate to her because she's a horrible evil monster, but my point is that it's easy to understand that idea. How many times have you had to put up with crap in your life? At any level of the scale, it could be really, really horrific stuff, which I hope none of you have ever experienced. It could be just down here to, you know, having a bad day at work, right? Usually what we try to do is we try to mitigate that, right? Like, okay, well, I may have to collate these 1,500 reports, but at least I can have my music playing while I'm doing it. Making the best of a situation, in short, which is exactly what she's doing. I'm not trying to make her relatable. The episode did that. But again, I reiterate my point. She's horrible. This is um, probably one of the worst types of parasitic slavery that I've seen on this entire show. This is literally worse than what the Telosians do. Even worse so because this has no long-term potential. This is just them um, throwing coal into the fire with no plans on fixing it or making it any better. 
At one point, Kirk gives this big thing on how he is willing to try and help them. And he absolutely means it, because of course he does, he's Kirk. And of course the Federation would be willing to study this, and their response is, nah. I feel like pointing out that McCoy successfully managed to make a D-speed thing, which worked on them just fine. We didn't even try it on the Skolosians. Anyways. So we find out that the radiation is what caused all this, and leads to another interesting factoid. McCoy flat out says there's no animals, no plants. Now it's possible the animals are hyper-accelerated as well, but what's far more likely is that there's no food. You see how, the, I can see how there are problems with the script. This is, this is a cloud effect. I do like this episode, but the script is nonsense, just like, just like uh, the next phase over on TNG. Because how do these people eat? Even if they had access to food, I want you to imagine, like, trying to kill and butcher a cow at 140 times speed. No, really, picture that. Okay, let's insert the knife, and because of the speed at which you're inserting it, the blood, of course, goes flying out at high velocity, but that's okay, because as the droplets are slowly spiraling out, you're already down to the point where you're already cutting into the muscle. That cow is undergoing severe nerval shock before you've even finished you know, carving out half of its flank. How do you cook it? Let's, let's, let's skip past the horrible gross part. How do you cook that? Okay, put it on heat for... Um, I guess a few hours. You'd have to cook so far in advance because the food and the, and the heating implements aren't also hyper-accelerated, right? So you'd have... Unless everything is hyper-accelerated, and by many accounts they are not, except for the transporter, which is super convenient. Barely an inconvenience. I'm getting I'm getting into the weeds. My point is this is a total nonsense premise. That's probably why people dislike it. This leads to another excellent aspect of horror, the kind slaver. Oh, do come with me. I'll take care of you and love you and be make sure that you're happy forever while I breed you in order to make sure that my species survives. You know this type of horror. You've seen it before. You've seen it if nothing else in the game Portal. Are you still there? Yeah, this is this is messed up in its own way. Kirk offers to help, I already mentioned that. And he decides to play for time, which is very smart, because he wants to delay the freeze so the crew can help out. You know one of the things I like about this episode, and I mean this sincerely, this is in many ways core track. No, I mean that sincerely. Hear me out for a second. Because who's the hero of the episode? I'm going to just go ahead and tell you the correct answer, in my opinion, is the crew of the Enterprise. McCoy, and Nurse Chapel, and Spock, and Kirk, and I'd say Scotty as well, all have a demonstrable impact on making sure that events happen the way they do. The crew is the hero, and that's, in my opinion, core track. Oh, I don't mind an episode that's focused on a character. In fact, there's quite a few very good episodes that are focused on just one or two or, or three characters. But my point is, Kirk doesn't save the day by himself. What, is he, what he does is he decides to play for time so that his crew can help back him up. That confidence in his people is one of the things, frankly, I've always loved about Kirk. That a lot of his... You know, he's got that, ha-ha, I've totally got this. Confidence. Confidence borderline, bordering on arrogance. But I've always believed, and a lot of this is coming from the films, I'll admit, is that confidence is because of his crew and how much confidence he has in his crew. Not of himself in a vacuum. 
This is in many ways the great mistake that William Shatner made many times, and of course led immediately into Star Trek V. The misunderstanding of the fact that it was the crew that was the hero, not James T. Kirk. Either way, <clears throat> this then leads to him playing for time. If you know what I mean. They have sex. Now, I'm going to get back to that. Spock figures out what's going on and takes way too long to figure it out. But he does, and so he's like, okay, McCoy, bring the message up. We'll read the message. Okay, we've got the idea. We know how to figure out what's going on. Got it. So we've got a potential solution. Here's the thing. I counted how much time happens between Kirk deciding to sleep with her and... You know, them deciding to... And, and then cutting back to after, you know, the post-coitus, okay? Now, I decided to be generous in my estimation of roughly how much time might have passed. Because there's several edits, so there might be gaps in there. So I just tacked on a full minute on top of that. I mentioned this earlier. So that means Kirk was having sex with her to distract her for 42 hours. <laughs> I have some stamina, but... That is above and beyond anything I could even hope to accomplish. That's that's not a marathon. That's a that's a world tour, is what that is. Wow, Kirk. Anyway, so he occupies her, if you know what I mean, for forty-two hours. Then we have a brief, completely unnecessary scene with Rail, where there's this jealousy thing, and Kirk almost dies, and blah 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 blah. And that then leads immediately to Spock being awesome and figuring out things and using super speed, and the episode ends. Two points. Actually, three. First, do, what type of episode do you think this is? Now, I ask that because, obviously, it, every episode doesn't have to fit into a box. I'm, I'm not trying to say that, but most of them do, because most of them have a specific intent. This isn't really a character piece. It's not really a thinker doesn't really have a theme, per se. So that leaves two big options. It's not a mystery. We figure everything out very quickly on. So that leaves two big options, dilemma or threat. Now, my first thought was dilemma. The Skolosians have this horrible situation, and restoring them and their people and their society feels like the dilemma. Nope. They are beamed down and abandoned. They get to die. <laughs> the end. Their species is over. Whew. I even looked it up to see if any of the ancillary works ever covered this, and I didn't find any. There might be one I didn't find. I, I don't have infinite resources and knowledge, but near as I can tell, the Skolosians never come up again, so yeah, they just die out. In a weird way, that makes sense. They were doomed anyways, if you really think about it. No, really. Think about 840 times speed. Think about how often a ship would come into this particular area. Think about it. Now think about how much time it, that would pass in between those random ship occurrences and the ship time, the time necessary for the ship to come there and the time necessary to infiltrate the ship, right? That is a huge gap of time for them, which they cannot afford when they're dying out of old age. No, by the time Kirk managed to get to a starbase, they're probably extinct. Interesting. Which makes this is a threat episode. The threat was overcoming them and their evil. And, okay, this brings me to my next point. Do you think that was the right call? Oh, it was undoubtedly the correct call. These people have been parasitic slavers for years and years. So, yeah, they, they, they need to stop being prey. They need to stop pirating, let's call it what it is, because they're, they're, they're not pirating cargo, they're pirating people off of anyone who happens to go in this area. That does need to stop. 
And if it me if stopping it means destroying them, then that's what it means. But um, do you think that was the right thing to do? What's interesting is we don't actually know if we could have cured them and brought them into normal space like we do with ourselves. Because it might not have worked on them. They work differently than we do. So who knows? My final nit, this isn't even a nit, this is a huge problem, is the Federation now has access to the ability to hyper-accelerate yourself and then restore yourself to normal with no negative side effects whatsoever. Let me say that again. The Federation now has the ability to make anyone the Flash and then restore them at will. I know this is going to sound like a strange thing, but this is probably the single biggest problem with the episode. I know I mentioned the, the other thing earlier, but no, this is a huge problem. Because while Star Trek has a very large habit of introducing, you know, some kind of technology or technique or ability or whatever, and then never using it again, this is huge. This would be a sea change for everything, which is exactly why, of course, it can't come back. We could probably come up with a headcanon reason for it. I'll even tell you mine right now. Section 31. I almost guarantee you, Section 31 got a hold of this, erased all the records of it, took a few samples just in case, and buried them. And that's probably what happened. Obviously, Section 31 would not be invented even in real-life terms for, like, 30 years. But my point stands. Because that's insane, and just leaving that at the disposal of any captain not only is a huge problem, but also means anyone who might take that ship under a hostile maneuver might also now get access to that thing, and that would be horrific. So, okay, we've got a solution. We've got a band-aid. You see why one of the reasons I mentioned that Section 31 fits... I brought this up way back in um, Inquisition and in DS9, the episode where, where Section 31 was invented. I mentioned that Section 31 weirdly fits a huge amount of Trek history. Now, at the time, I was referencing fairly large chunks of TNG and DS9, even early TNG and DS9. But there are multiple points. This is not the first time I've noticed that they would slide neatly into TOS without any even rewriting necessary. We don't have to rewrite anything here for Section 31 to smoothly slide in, take that from the Federation, and therefore from the Galactic Board entirely, so no one, no one else can see that piece on the board now, and then lock it away and never use it again unless they really, really need to. Either way, this was a surprisingly enjoyable episode. I hope you have enjoyed my thoughts overall. I'm looking forward to yours. See you next time, guys.